All right, we are going to jump into 1 Corinthians 15. Again, consider some statements that Paul makes here. Um, As we do that, we're going to consider the subject being a people of supernatural character. Or becoming a people who have supernatural or powerful character. Let's take a moment and pray before we jump into 1 Corinthians 15. Lord, as we've gathered together here in this room, uh, we know that you are not limited, nor do you specifically cater to the space that we gather in. Um, But Lord, we know that wherever we are is where you want to be. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to dwell in the midst of your people, that you long to create a habitation, a place of abiding out of our lives now knit together creating this habitation for you, creating this dwelling place for you by your own spirit, that you have shared your own life with those that love you and belong to you and that long to walk in your ways. Lord, you are in us, you are with us, you are for us, working on behalf of those that have aligned their lives to your mission in their generation that they are alive. Um, And so, Lord, we're grateful Because again, we know that where we are, you are. And so we want to be sensitive to your presence that's in our midst. We want to be aware of your nearness, King Jesus. Would you do something to make our hearts sensitive, to fine-tune our ears? Like the writer of Revelation says when John writes, Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, thank you that we have access to hear and to know your voice. Um, And I pray in a very simple way um, that would potentially and radically transform our lives. Would you speak to us this afternoon? As we consider these statements, would you speak to our hearts individually? Thank you for the journey that we are on with you, Jesus. And in the way that you have revealed yourself, how it has powerfully and, yes, continually brought change to our lives. We do not want to be the same. Would you conform us to your image by the power of your spirit? For this is the people that you deserve. And we want to be that people. A bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. You are working out what seems to be mission impossible right now. And that involves our lives. And so would you speak to us this afternoon, King Jesus, we pray. And we love you. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a statement that we alluded to the last time that we were together. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Or another way would be, I am what I am. And what I am has been made possible or has been become real by the grace of God. 
The grace of God has actually made me the thing that I am. In the substance, in the actual transformation, now in the reconfiguration of my nature, I am something at a default level that is different than what I used to be. I'm not just playing Christian games. I'm not just adopting a new language. I'm not just trying to get the right trendy, relevant verbiage so that I can seem like I'm associated with the right crowd or playing the right part. Paul says, no, no, actually, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm not trying to fake it till I make it, but I am something, and the something that I am is something that God has actually made me. In my guts, at a default level, I am something different. God has changed me. He's reconfigured who I am from the inside out. He's actually changed the nature. And so the way that I live is natural because my nature is different. I'm not striving. I'm not fighting. This isn't some fleshly manipulation. It's not some worldly coercion. I'm not trying to massage the right look into my makeup so that you can think something of me other than what I actually am. But Paul understands that God has done something so real, so dynamic, and it is so transformative that he is unrecognizable to the person that he knew himself to be. He's different. He's been born again. And in being born again, there's been a real transformation that has happened on the inside. It is the same Paul that writes in the second book to Corinth, any man that is in Christ, that man is a new creature. He is something fundamentally different. Though the outward man may look the same and we realize it's aging, we realize it's perishing, the inward man is being renewed. It is being transformed. It is being reconfigured. It is being, as Paul would say in Romans 8, conformed into the image of God's Son and that being the person of Jesus. He says, so don't get it twisted, though you see me the same from the outside. I know that I still look like the same person and I know that the tendency would be for you to interact with me based off of who you knew me to be, right? They were afraid of him in Acts because they knew his resume. They understood what he was about. They had heard the word on the street about what he was doing and they said, we don't want anything to do with him. Paul says, though you may understand my resume, you cannot relate to me anymore according to my resume. I am something different. I don't have the same struggles. I don't have the same appetites. I don't have that same issue. Those same bondages, those same things that would cripple me, those worldly desires that used to abuse me and hold me as a prisoner. Paul says, the stain in my soul has been removed and all of the fleshly, natural, carnal decay has been evicted because God has actually given me his own life. His spirit is now housed on the inside. It resides and he is alive. And I am something, again, fundamentally different than what I used to be. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he recognizes the source of his transformation. It's not just because he was more disciplined than everybody else. It's not just because he, he had the right lingo. It's not just because he attended enough meetings. 
It's not just because he gave in enough offerings. It's not because he went on a missions trip and came back Superman. Paul recognizes the source of his transformation. And it's none of these actual external things that we can use in order to prop up the right image. Paul says there's a life that has actually been deposited on the inside. And as I yield to this life that is on the inside, it is the source of this change that is happening in my life. He says, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, again, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, he would say, do not receive the grace of God in vain. But that it, almost the implications is that grace requires partnership. He says, don't receive it in, in vain. God can intend something for you that you necessarily never live in the fullest measure of because of our own negligence in partnership with the power that God has produced for you and for me. It's partnership. And Paul recognizes, I have said yes to God. And in that yes, in that continued yes, in that day by day, moment by moment, Yes, I can see him. I have yielded to him. I'm not living for myself. He's given me his spirit. It's real life and power on the inside. And it is changing me from what it is that I used to be. Again, he would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. We should come to a place where we have a certain measure of confidence in God, in our own transformation. Where we're not walking around guilt-ridden, condemned. Where we're not walking around with all of this baggage, all of this stuff, all of these attachments and things of sorts. Whether it be our own disgust with our own idea of what we're not. Right? Self-inflicted bondage. Maybe because our standard of what we think God should have been able to do in our own heart by now is not measuring up. Paul says, for there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There must come a place where we have a certain measure of confidence that like, man, yes, God has done something in me. He's done something in me and it's real. Right? One man of God would say there has to come a point where you believe in your own transformation. Where you believe in what God is doing in you as much as God believes in what he is doing in you. Because he believes in what he's doing in you. But there has to come a place in our own journeying with God where we believe in what it is that God has done and is doing on the inside of us. Where we walk in a restful confidence before the Lord that like, yes, he's given me real power and that power has changed me. Now, that doesn't mean that I've arrived. Right. Your GPS lies to you. Every time mine says it, I say the devil is a liar. It says, you have arrived. Lies. It doesn't mean that we've arrived. For the remainder of our life, we're going to be in process. Or at least we should be. So long as we don't end up in different places that we become satisfied with that God is not. Because maybe our own satisfaction with the transformation that God has brought about in my life is better than what I used to be. Right? Praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Man, at least I'm not a drug addict anymore. I'm not an alcoholic. 
Right? At least I'm not bound to porn and lust. At least I'm not beating people up out on the streets. Right? At least I'm not robbing folks and gangbanging. Man, I'm different now. Right? But our own satisfaction with the measure of transformation that we experience can at times become resistance from the fullness of what God desires to do in our life. Right? Where Paul would say in Galatians 2, it's no longer I that live. Right? We understand that in the context of the old Paul. Right? But Paul is not only talking about the old version of himself that he knew. Richard Wormbrandt is quoted as saying, it's not just the old I, but it's also the new I that Paul continually wanted to lay down. That this at times infatuation with how different I am, where now I have this stimulation through the idea of my own transformation that begins to create resistance from me continually yielding my own heart and life to God. Where I don't really think that there's a whole lot of work that still needs to be done because of all that God has done in me. Where I think that I'm good because I'm just not what I used to be. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not surveying his own life and then measuring the results up until now and considering that there's no more work to be done. That's not at all what he's saying. So we understand but for the rest of our lives, we're going to be in process. We're going to be journeying. We're going to be journeying. And just like Ephesians 5.27 says, Jesus is going to have his bride without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. And right now, the Holy Spirit is working out what seems to be mission impossible. He's working together a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue that will be pure, that will be holy, that will be upright, that will live in a supernatural unity, that there will be a bond of peace that brings us together as he himself is our peace, like Ephesians 2 tells us. And the Holy Spirit right now is putting together the product that the Father is going to present to his son that he loves on that great day that we know is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that product is a people. Because Jesus' reward at the end of the age is a people. It's a bride where the Father will finally get to say, here she is. Here's the people that you laid your life down for. Here's the people that you long to possess in the place of eternity. Here's the people that will be the rightful companion that will help to steward all of your authority and govern all of the universe alongside of you. Here she is. This is what you've longed for. This is the ache that's in your heart. This is what you have been on fire for from before the foundation of the world. There she is. You can finally be with her the way that you long to be. And we understand that our lives are a part of this beautiful people that God is putting together. And in what it is that we should do in order to consider what our lives should look like as we are being readied to meet this man. Because this is what we are all leaning in towards. At least if you believe what the Bible says, then this is what we are all leaning in towards. We are all leaning in towards the great and terrible day of the Lord. We are all leaning in towards the consummation of the age. We are all leaning in towards the second coming of Jesus. When he will come riding upon the clouds. 
in a host of glory and authority and a myriad of angels at his side. And he will return in order to make everything right. This is what our lives are leaning in towards. But as we are leaning in towards the end of the age, God is doing a work on the inside of those that belong to him in order to ready them for this second coming of his son. And he did not leave us without what we would call instructions or a prescription as to what the readying of our lives would look like. You know as well as I do that you can turn to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and find what many consider to be the constitution of the kingdom. We find Jesus' instructions. It's a prescription for a powerful life in God. It's what those who bear the Spirit are supposed to actually look like and feel like as their lives interact with others and with circumstances as they are being readied for the return of this bridegroom king. And Jesus lays it out incredibly clear what the actual makeup of our life is supposed to look like as we are being transformed. And maybe you've looked at some of these items, if we could call them that, and considered that, man, this is impossible. Some of these things are incredibly weighty. Some of these things, when we read the list of the desires, because we can't just read them as a to-do list. This isn't just like some religious tact. It's not just like, man, if I can at least try my best in my own strength, that over time I'm one day going to be able to embody these desires that God has. We actually, when reading the list, have zero chance outside of dependency on God to accomplish something that's real on the inside of us. We have zero shot at actually accomplishing these things that Jesus lays out as a way of life for those who are citizens in the kingdom. We have no shot. And that's not to leave everything in a hopeless vein because we are not without hope. But because the Holy Ghost has been shed abroad in our hearts, he is the one that gives us hope. And now because we bear the spirit or now because we possess the spirit by the spirit, we have been possessed by a divine life. And I say a divine life because it's not a life that is sourced by this world and its system. That we are very different than the rest of the world around us. Or at least we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be by way of touch and feel and sound. By way of the substance of our life, we are supposed to be very radically, powerfully different than the rest of the world around us. And this is the implications that get laid out for us in Matthew 5, 6, and seven in Matthew five, six and seven. Again, Jesus lays out not just a religious to do list, but he opens up his own heart in order to reveal his own character. We could hear it this way. This is what I am like. This is what I'm like. And so if you want to be like me, this is what I'm actually trying to make you. Because the goal is for me to make you more like me. I'm not really interested in you being the best version of you. 
I want you to be more like me. Because you being the best version of you is still not going to be enough for the rest of the world around you. Because they want to be the best versions of themselves. I need you to be more like me. And so if you're weary of doing it your own way and trying to do all your own things, if you're weary of all the religious hoops and hurdles, all the systems and formalities, all of the outward appearance but denying the real transformative power thereof, if you're tired of doing it your own way, then come to me. This is the Matthew 11 charge. Then come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest from all of your own striving. All of your own works, all of your own fleshly effort, trying to be the best version of a Christian in your own power that you can be, I'll give you rest from all of that. But you have to come to me. You actually have to come to me because I'm where the life is. You actually have to come to me because I'm where the rest is. You actually have to come to me because I am the power source and my life by my spirit will be what is housed in you and give you the power to be something different other than the you that you've always known your own self to be. Because without God's spirit, we should all have an immediate idea of who we would very quickly be. And if there's not any real difference between the you that you would understand with God's spirit or without, then I would ask you if you've been born again. Because if you would just be the same person anyways, then you wouldn't actually be born again housing a divine life. You would be who you've always been, and you would just be a religious version of who you've always been. Doesn't matter to me. Like, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. Praise God. So does the devil. We get that. The devil believes in Jesus. Right? The devil believes in Jesus. So that's not enough. In order to be a citizen of the kingdom. Our life has to be yielded to Jesus as Lord. Because in the kingdom, there is a king. And this king is not just a buddy who pays your bills. This king is not just somebody who multiplies food whenever we don't have any. This king is not just somebody that I can rub up next to, pop two quarters in, push the healing button that I need, and like a vending machine, he's just going to pop out whatever it is that I want next because that's what he lives to do. He lives to serve all of my desires. In this kingdom, there is a king, and he rules. He rules. And the subjects of that kingdom bring their lives under the dominion of that king. And so we can't actually enter into the fullest measure of kingdom life until we surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord. Yeah. Which means it's not my way anymore. Which means I'm not living for myself anymore. Right? This is basic kingdom 101. If any man would come, let him first deny himself. That's what Jesus says. Which means I'm not living for myself. Which means I'm not living for my own demands. Which means I'm not living for all of my own vain ambitions. Which means I'm not being persuaded by the world in order for me to feel like there's certain things that I deserve. <clears throat> right? On the entry to the kingdom, we forfeited all of our rights. Which means we've laid down all of our entitlements. 
Which means there are no demands other than Jesus. You are everything. And whatever it is that you will, I want what you want. So bend my will to your will so I can align my way with your desires. This is basic kingdom life 101. Which means our lives are no longer being governed by a worldly value system. This is what this means. If we're going to be different than the world, one of the ways that we are radically different from the rest of the world is we don't live by their value system. We don't live by their value system. And we don't live by our own distortion of that value system that's just now sprinkled a little bit of Jesus in the places where we've agreed. We've had a radical reconfiguration of what's valuable to us as a people. And my value system has now become Jesus's value system. I care about what he cares about. I want what he wants. This is that Psalm 45, seven people. I love what you love. I hate what you hate. And because this is the place that my life is now found, you have anointed me with the oil of joy and gladness and exalted me above my contemporaries. You want to know where the real joy in life is? It's in fully yielding to Jesus. Real satisfaction in life is having that work on the inside break us from all of our own fleshly, sinful, worldly, inherent desires. Break us from the world's persuasion. Break us from its system. Break us from all of its own conditions. Break us to a place where we are broken so that now we can actually be free because my life from the inside has actually been changed. Where I'm just not pretending that I like what Jesus likes because I know that it's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not just amening something because theologically I know that it's accurate, but that God has actually done a work on the inside and it has made me a different person and the bondages to my own desires and demands and then to the world's crucible and system have been severed from my own lustful cravings. And now what I want is what he wants. I want what he wants. And now my value system is his value system. Well, that sounds really amazing until we actually begin to take a deeper look into what Jesus's value system is into the people that he is actually trying to form in the earth in order to be a witness for him until the time that he returns. We are living as representatives, not representatives of our own desires. We're living as representatives of Jesus as king and his soon coming kingdom. We're living as ambassadors. Our life source is from another world. We claim to be citizens of the kingdom, which means that heaven as an eternal reality has come crashing into our heart now. And like Ecclesiastes says, God has branded the hearts of men with eternity. We know that the immediacy of this life, the prison of the immediate bubble at times that we live in, that there is so much 
more that God has prepared for those that love him. That there is more than just my 80 years. There is more than just 115 years for anybody who feels they're going to be around longer than 80. There's more than just whatever immediate time period or slot God may give me to steward. But that this time slot is actually preparation. This time slot is actually a moment for my life and my heart to be ready. That whatever measure of years it is that God will give me, it is to condition me to where my life begins to make sense according to the way that I'm going to live forever. And Jesus is trying to make disciples. Disciples that will love what he loves, hate what he he hates, and will allow their own desires, their own heart's condition to be reconfigured to his value system. He's after making a people more like himself. And when we look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we begin to understand what it is that Jesus is actually like. And he doesn't just flaunt it and lay it out there in order to create some wild distance like, hey, listen, man, I'm God. You're not. These are the terms. You're never going to be able to make it. Have a nice life. But what's wild to me is that coming towards the end of Matthew chapter four, it says that there's this wild commotion because Jesus was there healing people, casting out devils. Right. He rises out of the wilderness There's real power, there's unction, there's glory. There's the confrontation of the world system and even kingdoms itself. And it says that he's not only preaching, but that he's also casting out devils and healing the sick. And when you begin in Matthew 5, it says that when the crowds began to gather, that he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and he opened up his mouth. And he began to teach them. Jesus is a masterful architect. And he leverages what everybody else thinks is super cool in order for him to be able to use it as a moment to share with them what he thinks is super cool. Right? Everybody else is coming around because of the buzz, because of the energy. Everybody else is rolling around because he's a man flowing in power. There's signs, there's wonders, there's miracles. Everybody else is coming around because they're they're a part of the energy, right? Like, they're a part of the hype, man. Like, there's this dude, and he's doing stuff, and it's crazy, and he's flowing in power, and God's with him. And he takes this opportunity to leverage what everybody else is interested in in order to reveal to them what he's most interested in. You see, as we shared last time, Paul didn't just have a recognition that there were certain gifts in his life that flowed well. Paul understood that he had gifts that flowed, but what he considered to be more important or more ultimate was that he had a life that was worthy to be followed. And there are many that have gifts that flow, but don't necessarily have a life that's worthy to be followed. Paul said, imitate me. Again, imitate me. The implications are, I know what I'm doing. And it's not prideful. Paul isn't some egotistical maniac in the consideration of his own life. It's not like, hey, listen, I'm better than everybody else. He understands God has done something in me. 
And it's actually real. It's alive. It's powerful. It's transformative. And what he's done in me is now one of the means that he is going to use in order to bring transformation to others. Because there's nothing like getting next to somebody that destroys all of your excuses about what God can't do. How amazing it is for us to sit in our boat of impossibility and talk about why it should be impossible for anybody to actually get out and walk on the water. You know, we're all this way. You know, this is just a part of being human. You know, this is what it's like to carry this flesh. You know, even Paul had a thorn, brother. This is just going to be my weakness until the end of my life. This is just going to be my struggle. It's going to be my cycle. This is just my particular bondage. This is just what I've accepted. I've embraced it. I've identified as this. I'm just going to be this for the rest of my life. How quickly when we sit in our boat of impossibility, God will use an actual person to get in the boat with us that is living something dynamically different than the place that we perceive ourselves to be. And he will use that person in order to provoke us unto what's actually possible. This is what Paul is saying. Imitate my life. God has done something in me. I'm different. I'm changed. There are no impossibilities with God. Did I not tell you that if you would just believe that you would see the glory of God? For no thing is too hard for the Lord. For my arm is not short. My ear is not dull of hearing. I am God and you are not. And when Jesus sits down on the side of the mount, he reveals to them God's desires for what their actual real life is going to look like as they yield to the work of the Spirit on the inside of them. And he begins to go through a pretty weighty list. Because what we need to understand is that citizens of the kingdom have the character of the king. This is the essence of discipleship. Come follow me. Because again, I'm going to make you more like me. I'm not just going to allow you to be what the world applauds. Because again, the world is not creating the definition of what a disciple is supposed to be. The world doesn't have the right in order to provide its opinion on what a follower of Jesus is supposed to look like. The world does not have the power, nor has God given them the place in order to tell us what our lives are supposed to look like, feel like, sound like as we live them out. Jesus alone has the right for those that are going to be formed into his image. He has the right in order to determine what those people are actually supposed to look like. And he does that. But let's look at the list that he actually lays out, and we'll just cover some of them briefly. Now, now as you're aware of, these beatitudes, right? Because these are the attitudes we should be, as everybody says. These beatitudes all begin with blessed. Blessed is the person who this. Blessed is the person who that. Blessed is the one who this. But when we think about blessing, we have to very quickly sever from our idea what the world tells us should be a blessing. Because when we consider a blessing, most of us are not considering at all 
the things that Jesus is associating with what being a blessed person actually looks like and feels like. Jesus is referencing blessing into the quality of the life that we live as we interact with others and circumstances. And he's talking about a real substance of life that he says will be a blessing. We are blessed because what we have now become will be a blessing as we live out that quality of life to others and situations. When we think about blessing, I'm not talking about Biden bucks. When we think about a blessing, I'm not talking about a promotion on your job. I'm not talking about a bigger house. I'm not talking about a nicer car. I'm not talking about none of those things. So we very quickly have to determine where our discipleship has come from that has led us to the conclusions that we live out day by day. Because the world is attempting to disciple us. Maybe you know that already. The world is actually very intentional with their discipleship agenda. The world doesn't care whether you like it or not. It has its own agenda. It plays by its own rules. There's its own standards. And it's bent a certain way. And if we are not careful in any space or place that we are not yielding, to the scriptures and the influence of the spirit, then we are receiving discipleship from another source. Wherever the scriptures and the influence of the spirit are not bringing discipleship to you, you're receiving discipleship from another source. And Jesus lays out very quickly what discipleship should actually look like according to the people that he is longing to produce. This is the goal. The discipleship is attached to a certain product that he is after. It doesn't matter how enamored we are with our own ideas of what we have become. Again, it's not the old eye. It's not the new eye. There's no eye that's alive. It's now Christ. I want what he wants. He's doing it in me and he will fulfill his desires for me. Which means he has a desire for what my life should look like. And he's the one that gets to determine how far along in that process we have actually journeyed. Because again, the citizens of the kingdom should have the character of the king. And when you and I live as citizens of the kingdom and our lives are being transformed into a place of supernatural character. Because this is the point. What Jesus is calling us to is impossible without dependency on the life of Jesus on the inside of us. Again, we have no shot at living these things out successfully without his life actually producing it in us. To make it authentic. To make it real. To make it without motive or agenda driven. And these are some of the things that he mentions are a blessing. Spiritual poverty. Mourning. Meekness. Spiritual hunger. Mercy. Purity in heart. Peace. Persecution for righteousness. These are the things that Jesus calls a blessing. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst 
after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who recognize a spiritual bankruptcy on the inside, a spiritual poverty, those who don't want to graduate from dependency. Blessed are those that have that painful ache on the inside that realizes in its reaching for God day by day that if you had not done what you did, I would still be the person that I was. It's this ache, it's this longing, it's this jealousy continually. Not some moment where we graduate and we think to ourselves, oh, I've made it. I don't have to be hungry anymore. Right? These are some of the things that Jesus is saying, blessed or blessed are you. Or blessed is the one who lives this way. Then you continue into Matthew 6 and you find more character distinctions of a disciple. And it's joyful and radical giving and serving. Prayer, forgiveness, fasting, simple living, trust, all issuing out of a heart that has been possessed by the love of God. Let's listen to some of these things again. Blessed are you when you live in spiritual poverty. Blessed are you when you mourn. Blessed are you when you live in real meekness, because the meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when your spiritual hunger doesn't fade. Blessed are you when you live with mercy that's sourced from another world, because anybody can be merciful to those who haven't done something to them. He's not talking about just ignoring people that you don't like. He's talking about loving your enemies. And those who are merciful shall obtain mercy. It's a whole different ballgame when we have to intentionally hate or intentionally love someone that hates us. I'm not talking about dodging folks that you know don't like you. I'm talking about lovingly, joyfully serving those who have an ought against you. Those who have criticized you, those who have character assassinated you, those who have attempted by way of betrayal or indictment or accusation, those who have it out for you. Jesus is not just simply talking about loving people that are just difficult to get along with. But blessed are you when you become a peacemaker. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. How many of us would honestly associate these ingredients in life as being a blessing? Well, now you're going to say amen because you have to. <laughs> but typically when we consider living a blessed life, we think of wildly other things. There are very different ingredients that immediately become parts of our menu. Man, if I'm going to live a blessed life, that means I'm always going to be safe. It means I'm going to be comfortable. That means I'm going to have the income level that I've always wanted. That means I'm going to have a certain level of relational influence. That means I'm going to this, that means I'm going to that. And we create this list. But who says that's a blessing? Joyful and radical giving and serving. Joyful and radical in the place of prayer 
and the establishing of the secret place. Joyful and radical forgiveness. Yeah. Right, right? These are the ingredients of discipleship. Joyful and radical forgiveness. We all understand the only time you have to forgive someone is when something has happened to you. When someone has done something to you. You can think that you are the most graceful person in the world so long as no one else actually lives in that world with you. Because we all can think about ourselves whatever we want to until our life has to be involved with others. And this is the issue, is discipleship is best measured in the context of relationship to others and to life circumstance. Because these are the moments where what you actually are is what gets experienced. Where what you actually are, I am what I am by the grace of God. These are the moments where what you are actually gets experienced in proximity, relationally to others, and then circumstances that happen to us. But this is the crux of the issue, is we are supposed to interactively be different than the world around us. Which means when people interact with us, they're not supposed to get from us what the rest of the world is giving them. That means when circumstances happen to us and the situational things of our life begin to hit the fan, they begin to erupt and happen to us in ways that possibly we either did not plan for, because there's nothing like having something suddenly happen where you don't have enough time to calculate your response, where you don't have enough time in order to premeditatively leverage what you hope you're going to be in that moment. There's nothing like the suddenlies of life. But relationally and circumstantially, we are supposed to be something that is fundamentally different than the rest of the world. And this is the journey that we are on to become disciples of Jesus. This is the journey that we're on to become a people that are more like him. Not just by way of attending events. Not just by way of knowing how to do all of the externals that people tell us are supposed to be associated with Christianity. I'm talking about something wildly different than just the upkeep of the image. I'm talking about an actual transformation in our person. Where life now gets something different because of how different I am. Where now... What Jesus is like is becoming more and more what I am like. Where he's actually alive on the inside of me. And me being conformed to his image is not just in the spaces and places that I may desire most, but that he's becoming himself in me because he has made himself at home in me. I've yielded to him. I've laid down my life. My life is no longer my own. I do not belong to myself anymore. My discipleship is not coming from the world. 
which means they don't get to tell me what should be important to me. They don't get to tell me the standard of my life and the way that I live it out. They don't get to pressure me or pull me or push me by way of its own conditioning, trying to make me become more like them so that they're not convicted by the thing that I actually am. Because the world is not convicted when we are just like them. The world is not provoked. The hopelessness and the bankruptcy that the world is living in is not jarred whatsoever until it experiences a power in a person that has made them something other than what they know is possible for them by their own effort. If there were not something else happening in you, there's no way that you could have gotten free from that. If there wasn't something actually happening in you, there's no way that you could have responded to that situation when it actually happened to you that way. If there wasn't another life that was at work on the inside of you, there's no way that you could set your life up the way that you do. There's no way that you could consistently keep the value system that you have. There's no way that you could respond whenever the urgency of the hour and crisis hits your home. There's no way that you could be what you were unless you are not what the rest of us are. And Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am not what I used to be. He says, I'm not what the rest of you are either. Because when our life is in Christ, we're a new creation. When our life is in Christ, we are now a new creature. We are a radically different version of humanity. We are a brand new humanity. And God is using this brand new humanity to repopulate the nations of the earth city by city, Nation by nation, he is representing himself and his desires through the transformation of a people. And it is through the lives of these people that live as ambassadors of his kingdom that we testify according to his own power and we prophesy according to the things that we know are coming. And it is now our lives that God is using as a witness to the rest of the world around us that their system is bankrupt. And that the real hope is not in creating a better version of their demand for what they want their life to look like. Their hope is now found in repenting and pledging their allegiance to God's choice for the ruler of the universe, his anointed one, his son, says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Repent, turn from your own demands, turn from your own will and the fight and the wrestling to have things your way. Turn from the system and the mindset of this world that is increasingly desiring to disciple you to look more like it than you do like me. Repent, for if any man would desire to come, then he first must deny himself. And I get it because we immediately begin to think because of human nature. It's just the, the human tendency in our own heart. Well, Mike, that doesn't sound like fun at all. That doesn't sound really satisfying. If giving all of your life to Jesus doesn't sound very satisfying, it's because there's competition in your heart. 
It's because there's other lovers that are alive that are vying for your attention. It's because there's other demands out of this life that you have determined you have to have other than just the pleasing satisfaction and the smile over your life's obedience that comes from Jesus himself. There's competition because there's other discipleship. But Jesus tells us when you are discipled by my desires, meaning through the scriptures and the influence of my spirit, these are the actual character qualities that your life is going to embody. This is what I'm trying to make you. This is what the world around you is supposed to experience. This is what I'm trying to sow into every city of every nation to be a witness. This is what I'm trying to use to preach because I get it. So many times we are just enamored with gifts alone. But too many times we have powerful gifts that don't equally measure up with powerful character. And this is the point that Paul was making. I just don't have gifts that flow, but I have a life that's worthy to be followed. God has made my life a pattern because I actually see him. I've given myself to him and he has made himself in me. He understood that God is on a mission and this mission is to reconfigure a people and then to spread that people out across the nations where they just wouldn't preach with their lips alone, but the actual transformation of their life would preach just as loud as the message that comes out of their mouth. Where we wouldn't just have these dynamic gifts and then try to create distance from folks so that they don't actually see my real life. Where I'm not just powerful in a two hour slot on Sunday and then pitiful Monday through Saturday. Where I don't just know how to work services, but that God has actually worked himself into me. And I am now radically different every day because he has actually made me more like him. This is the goal. And it's important that we have the right goals. Because if we don't have the right goals, we'll be aiming at the wrong targets. And like Francis Chan says, the worst thing that we could do is succeed at things that don't ultimately matter. The worst thing that we could do is hit the bullseye a hundred times out of a hundred when we've got the wrong target. We need our value system to be radically reconfigured. And the reconfiguring of this value system has to happen as we give ourselves more and more to the scriptures and the influence of the spirit. Now, maybe that doesn't sound as sexy as you want it to. But this discipleship is going to come more and more in increasing measure as we give our lives to the scriptures and the influence of the spirit, the influence of the spirit personally, and then the influence of the spirit relationally as our relationship dynamics. God uses discipleship methods through them, because when our lives get knit together, it produces discipleship. So discipleship relationally 
and then discipleship internally as the influence of the Spirit is actually prodding me and nudging me, speaking to me and moving me. And this discipleship, if we want to look like Jesus, has to come by intentionally giving ourselves more and more to the Scriptures and to the influence that the Spirit brings in the variety of ways that the Spirit will actually bring it. But this is what Jesus wants. A people that look like him. A people that look like him. And to whatever measure, we've resisted his discipleship intentions for us. May we freely and fully open up our hearts once again to experience the love of God. Because it is only possible when he has loved us and satisfied us that we are then even able to look away from other things to begin to behold him the way that he longs to be beheld. Only when he has loved us and satisfied us. Right? This competition in our heart at times comes from a lack of satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus alone. This tendency to want to look somewhere else or at some other thing. This tendency to long for something else in my life. This tendency to not be free from these other desires comes when we have not actually been satisfied by him on the inside in a real way, not just saying, I love Jesus, not just knowing the right thing in the right moment to say or pray. Again, I'm not talking about all of the externals. I'm not talking about saying what we know we should say, even though I don't really believe it. I'm not talking about doing the things that we know we should do, even though my heart's not really in it. I'm talking about having actually been touched deeply by God himself and satisfied in the core of who I am so that I no longer have any demands for what my life, the experience of this life, or even the end objective of what my life may look like. I am free from all of the demands that I might have created had you not touched me the way that you touched me. This is what Paul says. I've learned to live in every extreme. I've had it all. This is Philippians 4. We know this, but we typically only land on Philippians 4.13, and then we massage it into everything that we want. Right? Paul says, I've learned to live in every possible extreme. Listen to this. I've learned. He taught me along the way. He helped me and formed me so that he could get what he desired in me in a variety of of seasons of life. He says, I've lived when I had nothing. There's been nothing. There's been lack. There's been suffering. There's been what we would call valleys. There's been trials. He said, but I've also lived in the opposite extreme. I've had it all. I've had abundance. I've had overflow. I lived in breakthrough. Mountaintops. Everything at my disposal. He says, but along the way, I actually learned something. He said, I've learned that I no longer have a demand on either extreme. 
He says, because I've actually learned a secret that there's a radical middle. He's discipled me along the way so that what he desires to have from me, he actually gets. And he doesn't only get it so long as my demand for a certain context is fulfilled. Right? Listen to what Paul is saying. I don't have to have a certain type of life in order to be faithful to him. Man, it gets super quiet. I don't have to have a certain type of life in order to be faithful to him. There doesn't have to be the right political situation in order for me to be a follower of Jesus the way that I know he wants. I don't have to have the income that I demand in order for me to be faithful to him and to love him the way that I know that he wants. Paul is saying I've lived in both extremes, but I no longer have a demand for a certain context so that I can be the disciple that he longs for me to be. He's not saying I'll only be a representative so long as you give me the right setup. He's saying it doesn't matter anymore. He's actually done something. He's demolished all of the demands on the inside. And now you can actually put me wherever you want to put me. Because regardless of where you put me, you're going to get the same thing out of me, is what Paul is saying. There's no more conditions. All of what you're going to see and hear and feel, there's no more conditions. It's no longer hinged upon the right situation. It's no longer hinged upon the right people being involved. It's no longer hinged upon the right job situation. It's no longer hinged upon those things. Because he's actually done something in me. And what he's done on the inside of me, it's real. And it's made me something different. And now, therefore, I realize that it's Christ in me that gives me strength. And I can do all things. May God disciple us beyond the point of only being able to do some things. <laughs> Doing some things. Well, Lord, I'll be good as long as you give me this, this, and this. But man, like, you know, if stuff starts getting really serious, like, you know who I'm actually going to be. And I'm going to start wilding out. Like, if stuff gets to the point where, like, because you, re you do realize like, I'm still like, man, I'm halfway saved. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in process. Like, like I'm a construction zone. Like, I realize that. Like, I get it. Like, it hasn't all happened. But, I mean, there's something that is happening. May God disciple us beyond the point of only being able to do some things. But may we be able to say, like Paul, I can do all things. Because it's actually Jesus in me that is alive and his life is sourcing the expression of my life and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Man, we need God's strength to come alive in us so that we can yield our lives to his desires, his agenda, meaning his longing to bring discipleship to us, which means that anything that is in my desires that is not in Jesus's desires, I need discipleship so that I can be conformed more to 
his image and his ways than me just trying to be a better version of my own image so that I can have it my way. I need discipleship to actually make me more yielded to his values because I want to love what he loves and I want to have a hate or a dislike for what he hates because this is where the anointing of joy and the oil of gladness actually comes in. And we need the strength of God's own spirit and life on the inside of us to accomplish this goal. There is no worldly effort that you can give to accomplish these desires that Jesus has laid out. He makes it an impossibility without dependency. We have to have you, Jesus. And you have to actually do something on the inside of me so that I am not the same thing that I've always known myself to be or even the Christian version of myself that I've just become satisfied with. You have to do something in me if you are going to get out of me what it is that I know you desire from me. You actually have to do it. But if you would touch me, I would get going on the journey with you. Because he's longing to have this people. And if we want to be a people that bear his image, this is what we are after. If we want to be a people that actually are conformed to the image of Jesus, this is what we are after. And we have to create the distinction between our Americanized, Western culture, Hollywood, sports entertainment, music industry, Christianity. We have to actually create the separation to understand that we are not trying to be American Christians. We are trying to be greater disciples of Jesus. And in any way that that may be confrontational, we have to create the distinctions because the two are not always the same. A disciple of Jesus is what we are after. And to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be discipled by Jesus. And so we're going to take a moment and pray. Um, because even at this point, I need prayer. Um, and we are going to pray for one another. That God would have his way. In our hearts. That he would have his way. And that he would get what he wants. Now for some of us that's. Possibly frightening. Because the thought of God getting ultimately what he wants. May mean that in some ways I might not get what I want. But if God gets what he wants, then you get everything that you want. Because when you actually delight yourself in the Lord, then he gives you the desires of your heart. But when he gets what he wants, 
All that you want is him, which means you want what he wants. And so it's no longer an issue of him giving you the desires of your heart because your heart has been deeply satisfied by him. And when you want him, he gives you what you want. And so you don't have to be afraid of wanting. But may God touch us so that he can actually get what he wants. I don't know if where you're sitting, you'd be able to honestly say to yourself, man, this is something, this is not just wild and loose and casual. This is a count the cost type of situation. Right? This is a count the cost type of situation. If God actually got what he wanted out of me, in my own heart, where would that go? And would I be okay with that? Because if he gets what he wants, then that means I don't control the terms. Right? If any man would come, let him first deny himself. But may he have a people that have actually given themselves to him in the way that he wants. That he can have what he wants in them and then out of their lives. Create the witness that he longs to give to the nations of the earth until his son comes. We are this people by his spirit. And this is our calling. To be a spirit people of supernatural character. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand up for a moment, and then we're going to close just by really taking time to pray for one another. And in that, I'm going to just pray something short and then I'm just going to ask just be led of the Lord um, even if you just want to pray for the person standing next to you I mean you can do that uh, but if you feel led to pray for someone who is not next to you then I'm going to ask you just be led of the Lord I mean, we all have the freedom and the maturity to do that so let's just be led of the Lord Let's just lay hands on one another, be life to one another, share the spirit with one another, pass out breath mints for one another as Frankie and his breath mint ministry is, we celebrate your ministry, sir. <laughs> that lifesaver ministry is saving lives. <laughs> We love you. Yes. Amen. Lord, we pray that as we've gathered together in this space to hear what I believe is on your heart, Lord, would you do something in your people? Would you touch our hearts? Would you set fire deep in our souls where we would be on fire for you? And I'm asking you, Jesus, to have your way in us. 
where we would give our lives over to your discipleship efforts. May you have a people that look like you. May you have a people that bear your image. May you have a people that carry the glory of God. May you have a people, your bride. May you have your possession, your reward. Jesus, would you have your way in those that belong to you? Amen. Would you touch us this afternoon, Jesus? Would you pour out grace upon your people? Would you pour out grace upon us, Lord? And would you help us, as we said, to look in a greater way to the scriptures and to the influence of the Spirit to bring proper and much-needed discipleship to our lives? We want to love what you love and hate what you hate. And in any place where this is not real, Lord, do something in us. We want your value system. We want to be more like you. Help us, Lord, to set our life up in a way that you would amen. Would you do it in us and empower us for the journey ahead to be disciples, citizens of the kingdom that have the character of its king. This is what we long for. Make us a people of supernatural character. Yeah, let's just take a few moments as we close. Um, And however you feel led, just gather up next to somebody, begin to pray. You can lay hands on one another.